I would add my word of welcome to all of you who are worshiping, worshiping with us uh, this day over our live streaming. And uh, whether you're a member of this congregation or not, we're glad you've joined us. And we hope and pray this service is uh, helpful to you. Our second lesson today comes from the third chapter of the book of Revelation. I'll be reading verses 7 through 13. And for those of you who haven't been with us in recent weeks, we're looking at the letters addressed to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Uh, John of Patmos in exile has a vision of the risen Christ. And Christ tells him to give these uh, words of commendation and rebuke and guidance and encouragement to the major seven churches of Asia Minor that were on an ancient circular road that linked them all together. And each of the letters was meant not only for the church under whose name it was uh, delivered, but to the other congregations as well. And I dare to believe to all congregations that bear the name of Christ. So let us listen now for this, the letter to the church at Philadelphia. And to the angel in Philadelphia write, these are the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say, say that they are Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming to the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon, so hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never go out of it. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Notice that church is plural, not to that, just that particular church. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What does Christ expect of his church? What does Christ expect of those people who bear his name into the world and into the walls of various buildings committed to his word and his work? We've been looking at these letters and trying to discern within them traits that Jesus is looking for in his people even today. The first letter to Ephesus was a letter saying, the importance or t teaching the importance of loving fervently, loving God above all else, loving your neighbor as yourself. Love is the hallmark of the Christian church, always has been, and I hope and pray always will be. The next thing we learn is that we are also expected when called upon to do so to suffer courageously because if you bear the name of Jesus Christ, you are going to be odd, at odds with a lot of others in the world around you, perhaps in your own home, in your own congregation, in your own community, in your own nation. So be prepared to suffer if you have to bear the name of Christ. 
You are to be people that are characterized by the truth, telling the truth, protecting the truth, expecting the truth from one another, from your leaders in the nation, the community, and the congregation. You are to be marked by holiness, holiness primarily meaning in this instance the fact that you're set apart and identified as people of God and you're recognized because of your connection to God and your service to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're also to be people, we learned in the letter to Sardis, that are vigilant in defense of their faith and are marked by being alive, vital. He criticizes this church because they're becoming dead, lethargic, uninvolved and unconcerned. So thus far in our messages, we have seen that Jesus gives commendation, though it's slight in the case of the church at Sardis. And he also gives rebuke and correction for those who are failing in some way. But to the church at Smyrna, he gives only faint praise. The letter to the church at Philadelphia is different from the others in this regard. Everything that Jesus says about the church in Philadelphia is praiseworthy. It's approving what they're doing, what they're being, how they're living. It's encouraging them to stay strong and faithful as they have been in the past. And so he offers only words of praise, commendation, and encouragement to this exemplary church in the ancient city of Philadelphia. Here is a church that had proven itself worthy of the trust that Jesus had placed in them. This morning in our children's message, we were reminded of the importance of our trust in God, but we can also think of God's trust in us, that he calls us into his service and he gives us work to do in his kingdom. With each letter that we've looked at thus far, we are discovering more and more of what it means to be a servant community of a servant God and what it means to be faithful stewards of everything that has been handed down to us, everything that has been entrusted to us. So this morning I want us to consider Philadelphia and see what we might learn and how it might apply to this congregation in particular or to any congregation of which you are a part, wherever you are. This is a most exemplary band of followers of Jesus. It's a community where faithfulness is an inspiration to others. Um, here's a church that is living up to Christ's expectations of, the, of them. And when I was looking for some kind of singular, all-inclusive term to use for this church at Philadelphia, one of my problems was that there's so many things you can find uh, praiseworthy about this congregation, as I always suggested. Their steadfastness, their perseverance, their faith, they refuse to disown the name of Jesus, even when to do so in that time and place was to court persecution, even death. They were available, they were vulnerable in the cause of Jesus Christ. I thought of using the word commitment. It's an overarching term, but I decided not to do that. In fact, commitment can apply in some way to each of these seven churches. When I was doing a little research, my uh, John R. Stott did an exposition in a little book on the first three chapters of uh, Revelation, and he uses the word opportunistic to describe this church at Philadelphia. And I thought about that using because obviously they had seized opportunities to serve Christ and 
and others, but there's something about the word opportunistic that carries a slightly pejorative sense in my mind. It suggests to me someone who is taking advantage of opportunities, whatever they may be, and maybe in, even in spite of uh, principles or consequences. So if this church were opportunistic, then it was opportunistic in a most holy and special way, in a principled and selfless way. Well, the church needed uh, a title, and uh, the bulletin was going to press, so I had to settle on something, and I settled really on another word, and that is the word trustworthy. I would use this descriptor to talk about the church at Philadelphia, and I hope I can use it to talk about this church in Greensboro, North Carolina as well. Are we a trustworthy congregation? Are we living up to the trust that God has placed in us to carry on his mission and work, his reconciling, his redeeming work within the world and within every community? How trustworthy are we? And I thought of this because in thinking of this congregation, you're a congregation, this is a congregation that has quite a track record of faithful service to this community and beyond. This is a church that uh, is known for being faithful and obedient, a church that has dealt with a lot of major issues over the years, a church that has confessed its own sin at points, a church that is working to resolve some of the critical issues of our day, a church that has been known for its proclamation of the gospel, for its excellent programs and outreach and education, and pastoral care, in worship and music. There's much about this congregation that is exemplary. And all of that is a part of our history. But the question is, what about our present and our future? Especially now, as we look toward the calling of a new pastor to come to give leadership to this congregation. What do we intend on being in the present and in the future in light of the trust that has been placed in us? in light of what we have been given as stewards of Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you a little about the Church of Philadelphia because it helps us understand some of the wording that is used in this particular letter. Philadelphia was the youngest of the uh, seven churches. It was not established until 140 BC and it was established by King Attalus II, a Greek king who named it Philadelphia because of a brother that he had lost, a brother that he had loved. I, I really didn't know that. You think of Philadelphia and Pennsylvania as a city of brotherly love, and I guess that's where that concept comes from. It was named for a brother of the king. And so he thought of that brother in the naming of this particular place. And it was created by the king and by the force, Greek forces to be an arm of Hellenization, that is the spreading of the Greek life, the Greek thought, Greek culture, the Greek lifestyle. It was a city that was intentionally set on a crossroads in that part of the world. It was on a major thoroughfare that linked two continents, Asia and Europe. It was right at the borders where three countries came together, Mysia, Phrygia, and Lydia. So it was strategically located. That was probably the most telling description of the church at Philadelphia. It was placed in a strategic place. It was to be a gateway of Hellenism. 
so that through this place the Greeks could reach out to the barbarians beyond them to a larger world and share their culture and their beliefs, their values, and yes, even their religion with them. So that is why this book says, Jesus says to them, I placed before you an open door. Philadelphia itself was a place for outreach and ministry to others. First for Greek culture, for the Hellenists. But Jesus is using this term in another sense. He is saying that you are an open door now for the reclamation of people and for the promulgation of the gospel and for service to people in that part of the world. So an open door has been placed before you, Church of Philadelphia, and you are to be a gateway for the gospel and a way that the Lord Jesus Christ can reach out and serve others in need, others waiting to hear the gospel who are near you. And this church in Philadelphia had proved itself to be faithful to this task and to this assignment. They had kept the word of Christ. They had faced many challenges and obstacles, both political and spiritual, and they had stood firm. They had faced their, these challenges with courage, and they had become worthy of the Lord's trust and confidence and blessing. In Scripture, you may not realize this, but the open door is a symbol that is used time and time again. And it's used as a symbol for the opportunities that are before you, both for salvation and for service. Jesus says of himself, I am the gate, I am the door for the sheep. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come and go out and find pasture. He also says in those uh, memorable words that we will consider next time in our final letter, I am standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. A good verse to hear on this communion Sunday as well. So doors must be opened and entered if salvation is to occur and if the separation between God and his people and separation of their people from one another is to be bridged because Christ is the gate into the presence of God and the gospel is the bridge that removes the dividing distance between God and his children and among his children one from the other. So an open door suggests this opportunity for salvation and for service. Listen to how it's used in other places in the scripture. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened for me there. Later he writes with respect to his visit to Troas, when I come to Troas and proclaim the good news of Christ, a door will be opened for me in the Lord. And Luke picks up on this same terminology in the book of Acts. He says uh, with respect to the ministry of Paul and Barnabas in the city of Antioch, the following, when they arrived, they called the church together and related all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. And later, Paul is asking his friends in Colossae to pray for him, and he says this, pray for us 
that God will open a door for the word that we may declare the mystery of Christ for which I am now in prison so open doors in the scriptures suggest opportunities for salvation and redemption and opportunities for doing the work that God calls us to do in the world twin aspects of one truth if you will salvation and service are opposite sides of one coin in our constitution in the Presbyterian Church in the opening pages of our book of order it talks about how in the reformed faith in the Presbyterian faith we are called both to salvation and to service both are essential sometimes people wonder if they're saved am I going to heaven when I die what's in it for me you might say but if that's your primary concern you're missing the boat because if you are called if you are a part of the elect then you have been chosen only so that you can put be put to work you're put in the vineyard not so you can eat the grapes but so you can tend the vines you're there to work this has always been true of the people of God from the call of Abraham in Genesis 12 Abraham is told that through you all of the families of the earth are to be blessed I didn't choose you because you were holier or better than any other people I want you to be my instruments for reaching out to the world that's what the church of Jesus Christ was told too and like Israel we have failed in that task sometimes we're more interested in what we're getting out of it than in how we're contributing to the work that God has called us to do I'm sure Marshall and this pastor nominating committee in looking for a new pastor they'd be somewhat suspicious if they interviewed a, a prospect or a candidate and he or she would want to know well what am I going to make and how much time off am I going to get and where am I going to live what are y'all going to do for me I'm sure they'd be cut cut off at the at feet if that were their attitude the question is how am I going to be used? What skills or talents do I have that can be invested in the work that God has called you folks to do there in Greensboro at the First Presbyterian Church? So, this church has been given an open door. They are to be a gateway for the spread of the gospel and for the service of those in need. Now, with this pandemic going on, I'm not sure we have finally determined what we're going to do in stewardship season but I regret we can't have a typical stewardship season because I'm, I'm rather odd in this respect I, I love stewardship season because I think stewardship is the time when we really examine our own lives as individuals and as members of a congregation or community what have we been given what have we been entrusted with for the purposes of God in Christ so we look at what are our talents, what are our, what's our time, what's our, our treasures that are to be invested in the cause and in the work of Jesus Christ. Rightly understood, stewardship is a wonderful season in which we can look at our own stewardship. What are we doing with what's been given to us? And how can God use us to be blessings in life? It forces us to ask, examining ourselves, Am I trustworthy, really? The Lord's given me a great deal. What am I doing with it? How is it being employed for the glory of God and the good of the church and the good of my neighbor? 
If ever a, church, a letter were to be written about this congregation or your congregation a hundred years from now, what would it say? What evidence would, it, uh, would there be that it was living out its mission? That it was seizing its opportunities? That it was walking through those open doors that Christ was placing before them? As I said earlier, this church has a great history of service, feeding the poor and the hungry, clothing people, worshiping with integrity, educating people, teaching the word, caring for people. That's been our history at least. Now what is our present? And does it not depend on those of us who have been entrusted with all that we have received. Now what are we going to do about it? How are we going to hand on what we have received? So we are to examine ourselves. We do that in stewardship season. This is another day for asking that question. Because 1 Corinthians 11 says, Paul writes and he says, first you examine yourself. First you examine yourself before you eat the bread and drink the cup. Examination is a priority when you're coming to the table of the Lord. Now, Presbyterian churches historically would have services of preparation. When I went to Charleston, South Carolina, some of the oldest members of that church who had grown up in Charleston remembered when as a kid and as a child, they came to the church to be examined the Sunday before the sacrament of communion was served. One of the elders or one of the ministers would talk to each and every person. The white members and the African American members of the church as well. They were all examined. They were asked about their prayer life, their devotional life. They were asked about their service. They were sometimes asked to repeat the Apostles' uh, Creed or the uh, Lord's Prayer. So it kind of forced them to look at themselves. Now, we don't do that anymore. I guess we expect people to examine themselves and feel that no one is really capable of looking into the heart of another person and deciding whether they are not there to be received at the table. But at one time, we took it so seriously that we not only examined ourselves, we examined one another also. few other things here I think are worth mentioning. Uh, the one who has this vision and is delivering this message is referred to as the Holy One, no doubt a reference to the divinity of Jesus. But he is also the one who has the key of David. That's an interesting thought and concept. What does that mean? I think what it's saying here, it's a reference going back to the days of King David. And he had a steward in his service called Eliakim. And Eliakim was responsible for the key of David. Eliakim was the one who could use the key to unlock the door that would let, allow people into the presence of King David. That's the key of David, Eliakim, controlled that. But Jesus is here described as one who has the key of David. Only Jesus can decide ultimately who enters into the presence of his father. He determines that. We don't. We're called upon to spread the word, to witness to people, to live a life that honors and reflects Jesus Christ. 
But how that word and witness is going to be applied to people, that's beyond our pay grade, if you will. Only God can determine that. Only God can make hearts and minds receptive to the word when it is rightly presented to them. A few more comments here as we prepare to come to the table of our Lord this morning after so long an absence. Uh, There are allusions here that are disturbing, quite frankly. One of the verses refers to the synagogue of Satan. People who are Jews but not true Jews, the word says. Um, This is a reflection of what the animosity that actually by this time existed between uh, Jews and Christians in the service of God. And these Jews, are not. it's not referring to all Jews, it's referring to some Jews who are willing at least, according to history, uh, to turn in their Christian comrades who were not willing to give obedience to the Caesar and profess that Caesar was Lord. So this actually existed and uh, unfortunately John writes about that here and I say unfortunately if John had only known how these words and the words that follow about making others bow at your feet who are not part of your company If he had only known how these words would be distorted and used by Christian people in future generations to support anti-Semitism, he may have chosen less inflammatory and suggestive language. But I think this verse, this passage is just reflecting the problem that exists in the time, in that time. And thankfully, for most of us, we've moved beyond that day. So... We are a community of faith. We are a gateway city. In fact, I was surprised when I moved to Kingsport, uh, Kingsport to, uh, uh, I don't know, where am I now, Greensboro, to see that it's called the Gate City because I'd always thought Gate City, when I lived in Tennessee, there was a little town of Virginia almost out my back door was Gate City, Virginia. It too was a place where people went from Virginia in the early days into Tennessee looking for a pass and going out to the west. But it's intriguing to me that Greensboro is called a gate city. And I wonder if First Presbyterian Church here can be a gateway community for the gospel and for the service of neighbor. That would be a wonderful attribute to have, a wonderful opportunity to seize God places before us in this strategic location, in these strategic facilities, and we are able to reach out and touch the lives of other people in this region and beyond. I'm intrigued by how many interstates come near Greensboro, the rail lines that go through the city, and I'm sure that's a part of why it was called Gate City. But in a spiritual sense, we can also be a great city for the expanding work of the gospel and the witness of Jesus Christ. We do know that eventually every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that is the hope for us as Christians. That is what we can expect because it's a promise that we find in the scriptures. One other thing that's said here that I find interesting in the promises that are given to this uh, church in Philadelphia, it says you will be pillars in the temple. We often speak of people being a pillar of the church, and I think this is probably where that comes from. But you will be a pillar in the temple. Now, by the time this was being written, 
The temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed 25 years earlier. There was no temple. Jerusalem had been destroyed. And in 17 AD, the church of Philadelphia, like the church at Sardis, when we were looking at that, was completely destroyed by a massive earthquake. And for decades after that earthquake in the year of 17 AD, uh, there were aftershocks and tremors. And so the people of Philadelphia were forever running outside of buildings and houses to avoid the collapse of stone and timber. And this is a promise, it's a metaphor. Jesus is saying, you're not going to have to worry. You're going to be a pillar of the temple. You're not going to have to go in and out anymore. You're going to be safe and secure if you remain faithful and obedient. And if you warrant the trust that I'm placing in you to continue this redemptive and reconciling ministry. So there's much uh, similarity, I think, between this congregation and the church at Philadelphia. And I hope we will prove to be as faithful and as trustworthy as they were in their own day. If we're to be that, then let us each examine ourselves and not just in the season of stewardship when it arrives and not just on communion Sundays, but it ought to be a continuing challenge to examine ourselves and ask how trustworthy am I given what has been given to me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.